Hello. Um, I'm a little sleep deprived, so today our goal is coherency. I'm not even sure if that's a word, but that's our goal. So if we can make some kind of sense and uh, join sentences together into larger themes, then that's like success. Um, Apparently, no one told me this, but apparently having a baby makes you quite tired. Um, Not as tired as your wife, but still quite tired. If you are planning on having a baby one day or end up having one, um, a little strategy for you could be helpful, um, mostly to do with talking to people who already are parents about what you're expecting it to be like. So here's the thing. If you say... If someone says, how are you feeling about having a baby? If you say, I'm really excited, they'll say, it's terrible. It's going to be so hard. You've got no idea how much your life's going to change. You're going to get no sleep. Um, Don't get too excited about it because it's the hardest thing you'll ever do. And you're like, oh, okay. So next time you learn your lesson, right? And next time someone, a parent asks you, how are you feeling about having a baby? You're going, man, it's going to be really hard. And I'll say to you, it's the best thing that will ever happen to you. There's some hard bits, but there's some amazing bits too. So the key is to cover both bases and take both of their speeches off them. And so you say, we're really excited, but we know it's going to be very, very hard work. Um, our lives are going to change profoundly. We've actually got no idea what it's going to be like, and there's no way we'll pretend to have any idea. Um, I wish I had your knowledge. And that way, they're left going, we're very excited for you. And I say, I hope not too excited, because it's going to be very difficult and painful. And that's how you win a conversation. It's all about winning. Um, Oh, dear. So we've got like a... This is going to be very difficult. I might have to get a, a singing bowl holder. This is going to come into play later on. We're going to get a real singing bowl at some stage, but at the moment we've got kind of a trainee singing bowl. Um, we're going to use this later on. For those of you at home, at uh, Sarah Nagorka's small golden bowl, which I imagine, I don't know, has had some kind of beverage in it at some stage. So, um, Harriet... Do you mind reading for us this morning? You don't have to read straight away, and you can say no. I know I put you on the spot, but it's, it's the Bible, though. Oh, you'll definitely do it. That's, you're like the opposite of most of our congregation. Here we go. There you are. It's a good way of getting some in, though, isn't it? Yeah. So we're a little bit late to Lent. We've kind of been doing Lent throughout the rest of our services, but because... Um, my sleep-destroying baby came a little bit late. We kind of pushed everything back a bit. So we're, we're kind of entering into talking a bit more about Lent a little bit late. This is week three of Lent, for those of you who are counting. And Lent is the uh, 40 days uh, leading up to Easter. And the, um, in the church, traditional church calendar, uh, it retraces the steps, the 40 days before um, the cross for Jesus. And so it's an opportunity to um, journey alongside that story, and let it draw things out of our lives. Um, so we are going to bend the rules a little bit. Because we're kind of starting a little bit late, we're going to go a little bit late as well. And we just hope that Jonathan Nully doesn't tell the Pope on us, because uh, oh, he'll be right upset if he finds out we're bending the church calendar. Gee. Um, 
So for some of you, um, Advent is too cheery and trite. <laughs> and you're going to love Lent because Lent is kind of dark and it's kind of horrible and it's kind of painful. But it's also, like many dark and horrible and painful things, it's also incredibly rich and runs incredibly deep. Lent is gritty and earthy, an all too hauntingly familiar story at times. Terrible things happen to good people, leaving us to ask where God is in it all. A life of love is crushed by a system of death. We hear the aching groan of a faithful man, asking the dark, dark sky why he has been forsaken in his hour of need. It is Jesus' story, but it's our story too. We see ourselves in the myriad of characters played out before us, not just in Jesus, those of you with Messiah complexes, um, but in the frightened, frightened disciples, the conflicted Judas, and the jeering crowd. Where Advent is too cheery and trite for some, Lent, if we let it, brings us close to questions that haunt us, an unsettling life and an unsettling God. It's an opportunity to learn together how to process Lenten realities in our own lives. Where do failure, loss, rejection, and the feeling of abandonment fit into life with God? We're going to spend some time with the question that Jesus cried out on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And we're going to look at that question through the lens of, I'm going to answer your question with another question. Um, we're going to look at that question through the lens of a, a, a short prayer of um, St. Francis of Assisi. He was overheard praying, who are you, God, and who am I? Who are you, God, and who am I? And I feel like um, with anything major and minor that we need to confront in life, the two very, very good questions. As we experience the joys and sorrow and the mundane and everything in between, to be asking the question, who are you, God, and who am I, opens up the potential for transformation for us to understand and know God better, for us to understand and know ourselves and how we fit into the world better. We're going to open ourselves together to confront God and ourselves in the season that we might grow and be transformed. We're going to refuse to leave God as an object contained, sorted, formulaic. And we're going to follow in the biblical tradition of engaging God as a subject, a person, dynamic, to be wrestled with, worshipped, sheltered at, and known intimately. Resisting comforting certainty and embracing something truly transformative, a relationship. So we're going to open this um, section of the series by spending a couple of minutes in silent prayer together, hence the singing bowl. Um, and you can do what you like with this couple of minutes. One option you've got is to pray around that prayer of, who are you, God? And who am I? And it's fortunately structured so well that it can operate as a breath prayer. For those of you who um, like a breath prayer as a way of kind of pacing yourself, on your in-breath, you can pray, who are you, God? 
And on your out-breath, you can pray, and who am I? And let that rhythm go with your breathing. Now, I would encourage you to breathe deeply and slowly so that you don't hyperventilate um, the common amateur mistake. So why don't you get yourself comfortable? Um, you can open a, a comfortable posture if you like. Um, you're a bit pissy with God. You can close your arms. <laughs> it's fine. There's space for that here. I'm not telling you what tone you need to take with this prayer. <laughs> you can choose that yourself. You can let it reflect where you're at right now. Who are you, God, and who am I? Thank you. learn one thing about you and this is that you're very immature of not being able to handle a not real singing bowl. Welcome back. So today we're going to read uh, from Matthew and we're going to skip ahead a little ahead of our Lenten journey just because, you know, we're already all over the place, so why not? 
And we're going to go to the cross because we're going to let the cross frame um, the rest of this little mini-series. And in this passage, um, Jesus is being taken to the cross. And what I ask as a congregation is that um, you forget everything you learned in Sunday school. Um, and you encounter the story as if in some ways you didn't know it. The danger with reading biblical stories is that we know how they end. And when we know how they end, um, the actual way the story plays out kind of doesn't really matter that much because it's like, who? do some of you skip to the end of novels because you can't handle the tension? Bad, bad people. Bad people. Um, so we're not going to do that. We, in our heads, theoretically know that um, the resurrection is coming. But we're not going to sit with the resurrection today because we're pre-resurrection Sunday. So you're not allowed to go there until resurrection Sunday. Today, you have to sit with Jesus on the cross. And um, we all know that that's uncomfortable and something we don't particularly like. But it's the story and it's the reality of Jesus' story. So I'm going to get Harriet to come and read for us. Um, and the words will be up on the screen as well if um, and would oblige. You can read along with us, or you can close your eyes and try and um, put yourself there in your senses with um, touch and taste and sound and smell and all the above. Yes. Then the governor's soldiers took Jesus into the praetorium and gathered the whole company of soldiers around him. They stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him and then twisted together a crown of thorns and set it on his head. They put a staff in his right hand. Then they knelt in front of him and mocked him. Hail, king of the Jews, they said. They spit on him and took the staff and struck him on the head again and again. After they they had mocked him, They took off the robe and put his own clothes on him. Then they led him away to crucify him. As they were going out, they met a man from Cyrene named Simon, and they forced him to carry the cross. They came to a place called Golgotha, which means the place of the skull. There they offered Jesus wine to drink, mixed with gall, but after tasting it, he refused to drink it. When they had crucified him, they divided up his clothes by casting lots. And sitting down, they kept watch over him there. Above his head, they placed the written charge against him. This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. Two rebels were crucified with him, one on his right and one on his left. Those who passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, You who are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days, save yourself. Come down from the cross if you are the Son of God. And in the same way, the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the elders mocked him. He saved others, they said, but he can't even save himself. He's the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross, and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God rescue him now if he really wants him. For he said, I am the son of God. In the same way, the rebels who were crucified with him also heaped insults upon him. From noon until three in the afternoon, darkness came over the land. About three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lemma sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? My God, my God, 
Why have you forsaken me? At this point in the story, we find a beaten up, abandoned Jesus. The triumphal entry into Jerusalem is a distant memory. He hangs, beaten, alone, abandoned. His mission of announcing the kingdom has led him to this. Jesus was faithful to the Father, obedient even at great cost. Now it seems that the whole world and God with it has turned on him, left him to die a cruel and shameful death. Abba, Daddy, is nowhere to be found. Jesus experiences something familiar to many of us, the loss of God. In this moment, in this experience, we ask the question, who is God and what is he like? And who are we during those seasons? What does it say about us? Those are questions we're going to try and tease out during this Lenten story. A few years back, the story of crucifixion and the way I understood it left me feeling like I had lost God. I was, if you flick back, I don't know, how many years now? 15 years, maybe. I was an enthusiastic young youth leader. And uh, I had, I know, young, um, enthusiastic. I had a, uh, a group of 12 church kids that me and a few other people were looking after, and I got placed in charge of the 11 and 12-year-olds. In New Zealand, you have this amazing thing called intermediate, and intermediate's the best because it's like, there's like primary school, which goes up to like, from like five to 10, and then like 11 and 12, you go to a whole new separate school. I don't think it happens much here, um, but you get like, the first year, you're like the new kid on the block with a m- massive school bag um, and a uniform that doesn't really fit. And then in the second year, you like fit your school bag and you're like, you're the king of the school. And then you go to college next and then you're really tiny again. But for those two years, it's this wonderful kind of like isolated experience where you're not getting beaten up by 17-year-olds yet. Not that that happened. Um, they were 12. Um, I got punched in the head once accidentally while riding my bike. A guy rode up behind, beside me and just like backhanded me in the face and then looked at me and went, oh, sorry, I thought you were someone else. And I cried a lot. So, yeah. My God, my God. What? Exactly. Um, so we had these, like, 12 church kids, and we, start, we ran this, like, kind of carnival every year, as a good young Pentecostal church does, um, where all the kids of the neighborhood came along, and um, heaps of them came. And then lots of them ended up joining our youth group, which was really cool. And so we went from, like, having 12 kids, and within a couple of years we had, like, a couple of hundred 11 and 12-year-olds, and it was, like, really, really fun. And so we had this, like, Friday night program where we played just games with them and tried to teach them not to punch each other too much. And we got, like, the entire cross-section of our community there. So we had, like, you know, little rich kids and, like, big kids and little kids, and we had, like, really, really poor kids, and we lived in a, um, um, like, I don't know, kind of like a middle-class Quite, we had a very white middle-class church, um, but we lived in a kind of like semi-middle-class area, but bordering on like lots and lots of like lower socioeconomic areas. And so we had like just all these kids just everywhere, and it was amazing. And we hung out with them, and it was really, really fun, and we just fell in love w- with them. And um, 
in particular, I ended up with um, looking after a, a whole bunch of young Maori kids, and um, and it was kind of a side of life I'd never really seen that much. I had a, you know a few friends in school, but like you know, this in a way that I could process was um, the first time I guess I'd realised like we had been poor, but we hadn't been poor poor, um, and it was the first time I'd really kind of encountered that side of life, and um, we just spent our time like. You, seven nights a week for the most part. Very, very busy people. Um, just trying to, you know, having more leaders meetings to work out how we can look after these kids. And um, it was, for the most part, a truly wonderful experience. And then the thing weird happened is that they liked us enough that they came to our Sunday program, which was like the God one, which was like really trippy because like the only the kind of like 12 church kids had ever come to the Sunday program. And then so suddenly it was this like amazing opportunity where we got to tell them the good news. And so pretty much like it's an old hat story for everyone who was already in church. All those kids had like yawn, heard it before. But trying to explain the whole God thing to people who had never known that story, for me as a kind of reasonably sheltered, young, enthusiastic, very well-meaning Christian boy was something new. And what happened in that experience is that for the first time, I heard myself telling the story. The good news goes something like this. Now, caveat. This is my story. You don't need to share in it. You don't need to take my tone on it. You didn't necessarily grow up with the story. This is my story. But some of it might resonate with you. And I want to be very careful and generous here because... I'm going to have a go at a version of a story that I grew up with, which might be something that's very, very dear to you. But I'll try along the way to explain what my issues with it were. Um, And I hope that we're big enough and gracious enough together to understand that we all respond to stories differently. Um, But this is the good news as I grew up with it. God loves us. Now picture me telling 50 Hoodrat kids, the good news. God loves us. But we're all terrible sinners. So much so that God can't actually bear to be near us. He is so good, he can't actually be close to you. Because your badness is like a magnet in reverse that pushes away his goodness. Not that he doesn't want to be with you, it's just that he can't. You were born a sinner. And your sin makes God so angry that he'd like to forgive us, but he can't just forgive us. You see, there's these laws divine laws in the sky and the fabric of the universe. That means if someone breaks a law, someone needs to be punished. And you're so bad that you can never pay the price for the bad things that you have done. He can't just let us off. Someone has to pay. He'd like to, but his hands are tied. He just can't. 
Someone's got to bleed, kids, or you'll suffer forever. That's just what God's love is like. It was about here that, as I said these words out loud, week after week, that something started niggling at me. It didn't seem fair. We didn't choose to be born. These kids certainly didn't. They learned to be born into sin. And yet now, they're going to hell. Inside the Christian bubble, this has kind of all made sense because we just skimmed over it. It's just the way things were. But as I told these kids I loved the good news, it seemed anything but good. It seemed sick and petty and really disturbing. Half of them came from homes so messed up that jail was almost inevitable. I looked after the two kids that got the largest community service sentence in, the hist- in New Zealand's history. 400 hours for 12-year-olds. Got done for kidnapping. As children, how weird is that? Someone, once they saw someone driving and they like hailed them over and then had a screwdriver and made them take them into town. But because this kid was 15 and not 18, they got done for kidnapping and nearly got taken off their parents and sent to juvie. So... Telling a kid who's got an alcoholic mother, a father they've never met, a creepy sexually abusive uncle, and doesn't get to bring lunch to school, that they're on the wrong side of God, seems like the worst, best news ever. And I could kind of get past that bit of the story, because at least there is a way of getting right with God. But the next bit really got to me. Fortunately, the story went, if someone innocent, perfect, dies, it will cancel out all of our sins. And it left me asking, what kind of weird justice system is this? If I walked up and punched Cat in the face, I would get beaten up. But let's pretend for a moment that I didn't. She would beat me with a book of feminist literature. But if I did that, and then Warwick said, it's okay, you could hit me back instead. And I went, choice, Kev. Is that justice? It all seems a bit weird. How is it fair that an innocent person takes the rap? That Jesus had to be tortured, whipped, beaten, cruelly left to die on a cross to make a maths equation work so that God could forgive us? A system where an innocent victim had to die seemed like such a slap in the face when sharing that message with innocent victims. It all seems so opposite to the God I talk to at night so opposite to the Jesus I loved. It left me feeling profoundly and totally disconnected with God. I didn't want to know a God like this, but it was all I was left with. It was the only message I had ever known. And so I was in crisis. I had 
to tell these kids something, I had to go home and talk to God at night. I had, I was a professional Christian at the time, as my friends now call me. I, I get paid <laughs> to love Jesus. It was incredibly problematic for me. I didn't want to know a God like this, but I still loved a God like this. It was incredibly confusing, but it was all that I was left with. So it brought up these questions at 22 years of age of who is God and who am I? What does this say about me? Who is God? Is he less nice than I am? Is this really what he's like? How do I reconcile Jesus and the Father? How do I recognize the Jesus on the cross and the Father who seems to have abandoned him? Who am I in this? What's my faith made of? Am I losing it? Am I losing God? Am I just untrusting and fickle? Do I need to pull myself into line and believe what the Bible says? Am I just a product of modern culture who thinks that they're superior to God and the ancients? Do I think I'm better than God? Is that just sinful pride? Am I brave for asking or am I cowardly for doubting? What are my options from here? Do I put it in the mystery box and press on? Do I suppress it and pretend I never asked? Do I love God anyway and, pre- and trust that he's good? Do I reject it all and throw it away? Do I kick and yell and scream? Why, when everything else seemed like it was working, did I lose God in the process? I believe our task and what's modeled to us in Scripture is to confront God in this place, to refuse to leave him as a simple formula to be accepted or rejected, and instead kick, scream, weep, wrestle, and hope that in the process we find God as God truly is and trust that in the process we might be transformed. So we're going to be brave together. Next week, I'll talk about where I journeyed from there and how I've come to some kind of peace in this story. And it might not be an answer you're going to like, and it might be an answer that's a really, really helpful thing for you. But either way, it's just an option. But I want us all to sit with Lent this week to sit with those moments where we feel abandoned by God, to sit with Jesus on the cross and ask why in areas of life we feel forsaken and find where God is in it and open ourselves. Open ourselves to those voices. Open ourselves to the fact that we're going to die one day. Open ourselves to the depth of pain that we see in the world. Open ourselves to the fact that day in, day out, innocents are victimized. And ask, where is God in the midst of this? And as we journey together, um, 
may we continue to ask who God is and who we are in this process and that somehow in it, that we'll be brave, that God would meet us and that we would be transformed in that process. Um, Normally we have some kind of discussion, but this morning we're not going to because I fear that we'll end up trying to answer this rather than sit with it. So hold your thoughts. Feel free to write them down. You can send me angry emails if you like. Um, That's okay. But together we're going to wrestle with this over the next few weeks. So love one another. Make someone a cup of tea. Give someone a hug if you need to. And go in peace. Jackie? I don't know what you're pointing at. Oh, oh yeah, sorry. That's actually how we were going to end. I did actually lose God in this. We have communion in front of us. If you would like, just as we go, you can break a cracker and eat and drink together. You might want to carry on talking. Um... You might want to express your anger at this. That's all right. You might want to share stories where you feel abandoned. That's okay. Um, You might want to say, you're coming back next week or you're definitely not. (laughs) Um, But let's eat and drink together. The body of Christ broken for us for whatever reason we believe it to be. God, be with us as we ask, who are you and who am I? In Jesus' loving name, amen. Go in peace.